What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. On This Week in FCPA, Tom and Jay look at the following stories. What is the state of the Chief Compliance Officer in 2021? Mike Volkoff takes a deep dive in crime, corruption, and compliance. What is the intersection of compliance, culture, and the COVID-19? Calvin London explores in Corporate Compliance Insights. What comes next for ABC Enforcement in Brazil? Uh, we look at an article in NYU's Compliance and Enforcement Blog. Matt Kelly writes about the four steps to building out a better business continuity plan on Navex Global's Risk and Compliance Matters. Aaron Nicodemus reports in Compliance Week about the SEC reversing reversion to allow more investigations to be started by people other than the commissioners themselves. Dylan Tokar interviews the former Wirecard CCO about the red flags that were missed. How about retrieving WhatsApp messaging for an internal investigation? Andrew Reeves and David Harris speak to us in the FCPA blog. What's the virtual boardroom and where is that going for corporate governance? We take a look at that. We review new podcasts. We take a look at upcoming events. We talk about the pre-sale launch of Tom's new book, The Compliance Handbook, second edition, all on This Week in FCPA, Tom Fox and Jay Rosen. Compliance together with Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen, for This Week in FCPA, episode 239, the goat of all time edition. Jay, that is not redundantly superfluous. Um, And it's uh, chilly 37 here in Houston. What say you and... It never rains in Southern California. Uh, we're talking about 61 degrees in Simi Valley, and it's going to be a nice walk for me and Latka later on this afternoon. So, Jay, what was it like watching your quarterback win uh, a Super Bowl for Tampa Bay? Uh, it actually was a, a pleasant experience. I didn't really have too much invested in the game, and um you know, I was surprised. I, I think a lot of it was the injury to Mahomes, but uh, I am happy for the GOAT. And I think as of today, uh, it shows that maybe uh, more of those six uh, Super Bowls with the pa- Patriots had something to do a little bit more with the GOAT than with the hoodie. So uh, at at any rate, uh, we had a pretty eventful week in the FCPA commentariat. So you want to jump right into it? Let's go for it, Tom. So I first want to start off by a triumvirate of articles by Mike Volkoff on the state of the CCO. And as with all things Mike Volkoff, it's a, it was a great series, but he uh, looked at it from kind of where it's been to where it's going, uh, starting off with uh, Back to the Future, uh, where he looked at uh, salaries of CEOs, who CEOs, CCOs are reporting to, uh, where the compliance function is in the organization. Uh, in uh, part two, he talked about uh, 
troubling trends in uh, CCOs, both in terms of staffing and resources, independence, authority, and empowerment, and where CCOs uh, are in terms of what the DOJ asks as is your compliance program being earnestly applied and in good faith. And he concluded by looking at uh, some CCOs who may have a target on their back. And here, Mike and I, I think we uh, very much are in agreement that CCOs who have been prosecuted previously uh, really had done something uh, uh, intentional, uh, not negligent, and were fined for it. They were largely in regulated industries. We've had no CCOs in the FCPA world sanctioned, Jay. But he noted that uh, in uh, regulated industries, there can be certifications that CCOs are required to sign, and this is expanding. He pointed to the uh, New York State Department of Financial Services requiring annual cybersecurity compliance certifications, the Bank Secrecy Act, and money laundering uh, AML certifications, uh, HHS, OIG, corporate integrity agreements also have certifications. And when you sign a certification, this is uh, obviously does put a bit of a target on your back. So if you're going to sign one of those, I would suggest that you uh, be uh, telling the truth, not alternative facts, and that you have uh, documented, documented, documented any certification that you do make. But it's a, it's a great review from Mike. We, of course, have linked to it in the show notes. So uh, check it out. Jay, uh, what do you see around the intersection of compliance, culture, and COVID? Thanks, Tom. Uh, this comes to us from Corporate Compliance Insights blog. GRC pros know that culture and compliance are inexorably linked. COVID has thrown a wrench into the corporate culture. Calvin London opines about why reestablishing the culture of compliance now may prove difficult. Last year in 2020, the DOJ and the SEC brought FCPA enforcement actions against 12 companies and imposed financial penalties, fines, and disgorgements totaling a whopping $6.4 billion. A number of major settlements were reached with corporate bodies, including Goldman Sachs, Herbalife, Airbus, and Novartis. As is often the case the un- in the underlying problems with these companies hinges on culture. Consider the case of Goldman Sachs, who last year topped the charts in FCPA cases with nearly $4 billion in settlements to both the DOJ and the SEC. They were a major contributor to the record year for enforcements. Let's take a look when corporate cultures go bad. Culture is a funny thing. It can be changed by one person to become a way of life inside an organization. It is contagious in both good and bad forms. It can bring a company to its knees as well as have seen with aspects of COVID over the last year. So we have a huge influence in the behavior of others. Often employees blindly follow a culture, be it good or bad, in one direction or the other. We would like to think that corrupt behavior is the exception in companies or the broader society in which we live, But when you consider the extent of some cases that have come to light, clearly this is not the case. COVID's impact on compliance and culture. Add to the legacy of COVID and extensive periods of business operating remotely with employees left to their own devices at home, and you have a potential perfect storm for non-compliance. As companies ventured into 2021, many will be trying to pick up the pieces from last year, and one wonders how many new situations will be unearthed. It's hard to say whether COVID led to more incidents of noncompliance, 
while the cat is away, or fewer because everyone was focused elsewhere. For some, this year will be a continuation of trying to deal with sins of the past. For example, Purdue Pharma LP agreed to the imposition of the largest penalties ever levied against the pharmaceutical manufacturer, including a fine of $3.5 billion and an additional $2 billion in criminal forfeiture. Johnson & Johnson's long battle with regulators to settle some 2,000 lawsuits around the use of talc-based powders and links to ovarian cancer looks to go another round as in its latest appeal in November 2020 was rejected and the company was told that the $2.1 billion verdict would stand. Last year, J&J moved to settle around 1,000 lawsuits for more than $100 million. And this year, we'll also see the start of the much-anticipated Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos trial. It will begin in March before a face mask jury and socially distanced courtroom, an apt reminder that even a pandemic cannot stand in the way of justice. Not even COVID can stop corruption, and we may see that in some situations, it has added a seemingly effective smokescreen for noncompliance and bad culture. Only time will tell. What is for sure is that companies will have a challenge in the coming year, reestablish a culture of compliance, and an environment that changed drastically as a result of COVID. Every company has to deal with the relationship between compliance and culture, but now we have another C word to contend with. COVID. Back to you, Tom. Jay, next up, we want to look at an article that appeared in the New York University Compliance and Enforcement Journal about anti-bribery, anti-corruption enforcement in Brazil, specifically around a Lava Jato is closing up shop. And that, of course, was the car wash investigation. And the authors um, who um, uh, talked about this really looked at the history of uh, of it and where it may be going. And some of the numbers were just uh, uh, rather amazing to review, Jay. Uh, Lava Jato led to 174 convictions, including a former and current presidents of Brazil, former top ministers in the Brazil Working Party. Uh, a total of $750 million was returned to the Brazilian government, total fines and penalties against companies of $2.7 billion. The legal developments of the use of uh, essentially deferred prosecution agreements. Uh, it was novel in Brazil at the time. For us, Jay, I think one of the biggest aspects, and I say us, I, I mean those here in the United States, was the cross-border uh, implications of Lava Jato, both in terms of cooperation and global effects. We had uh, numerous countries involved with Brazil sending out more than 650 requests from cooperations from 41 countries. Peru, Switzerland, U.S., Argentina, Colombia, Panama, uh, all led the way. Uh, lots of invocations of mutual legal assistance treaties, uh, huge settlements, including the uh, settlement with Odebrecht, Brascom, the settlement with Keppel Offshore Marine, and the settlement, of course, with uh, Petrobras. Uh, the um, conclusion of Lava Jato was by the Bolsonaro administration, um, probably as close to the Trump administration as any other uh, presidency in the Western Hemisphere. And their desire to prosecute corruption, of course, is, is about the same of Donald Trump. Uh, it's not clear after the Lava Jato team has been broken up, what will be the future of Brazilian uh, anti-corruption enforcement, although the authors believe that the um, world's largest sort of overall 
uh, focus on uh, by Lava Jato uh, is has built bridges that cannot easily be torn down. So certainly it'll be interesting to see. Uh, they also note that if the Brazilian government uh, doesn't enforce anti-corruption laws in Brazil, the U.S. has shown that it's ready, willing, and able to prosecute Brazilian companies that have a U.S. Uh, tie or a U.S. subsidiary or send money through the U.S. or fly to the U.S. to uh, put the bribery deal together, and there can be significant exposure under the FCPA for companies in Brazil. So uh, hopefully Brazil will continue to be a robust partner for the Department of Justice as they have been. You and I both have several good friends who come out of the Brazilian compliance community. It's a very robust community. It has made strides um, probably uh, in the last five years. They've made up 20 years of difference between themselves and the U.S. in terms of where their uh, compliance programs are and and we both call some very top-notch compliance professionals good friends. So uh, lots uh, has come out of Brazil. I would anticipate that the authors are right. These bridges will not be burned because Brazilian companies have seen to compete on the international stage. They need best practices, compliance programs, and that's driven in some part, uh, perhaps even large part, by uh, government enforcement action. So interesting news out of uh, Brazil, uh, Jay. Uh, we have uh, now something from the coolest guy in compliance. Sorry about that. Um, Matt usually writes to us using his radical compliance moniker, but today he's writing under Navex Global's Risk and Compliance Matters blog, and he's going to talk about four steps to start a business continuity plan. Most risks and compliance professionals already grasp the importance of business continuity planning, pandemics, climate, disasters, cybersecurity attacks, and supply chain instability tend to have that effect on a crowd. But there's a big difference between understanding the need for business continuity and developing actual business continuity plans. How can you start building a business continuity plan? What steps are most important? And which ones are the hardest to get right? Number one, do a risk assessment using a business continuity framework. Like other risk management efforts, business continuity planning begins with a risk assessment. The details of that assessment, however, might be more intricate than most compliance professionals are used to methodically. The goal of a business continuity risk assessment is, number one, to map the organization's business objectives, to process to support those objectives, and then, two, match those processes to the assets that support these processes. For example, say a business objective is the timely delivery of goods and services to customers, the processes would include accepting customer orders, assuring sufficient inventory, and shipping goods from the loading dock to the customer. The asset would include IT systems to place orders, goods in the warehouse, and a reliable third-party shipping service. Number two, do a business impact analysis. The results of the risk assessment will inform the business impact analysis, BIA. A business impact analysis takes the assets you've identified that support your most critical business processes and asks the following question, what would happen to these processes and our ability to achieve our objectives if the assets were suddenly unavailable? The BIA should tell you which goods, IT services, or employees are crucial to mission critical business processes and which risk events, power failures, hurricanes, IT outages, et cetera, would cause the most disruption if those risks aren't remediated. Three, develop a business continuity plan, or BCP, which will address risk in several ways. Here are a few examples. 
to avoid a a shortage of critical components, for example, you might adopt a policy that specifies when we're down to our last 100 widgets, we order a fresh batch. The BCP should be documented and shared with senior executives and operation teams so that everyone understands their responsibilities in the event of a disruption. Number four, communicate, practice, and monitor. BCPs are living documents. You can't leave it in a desk drawer to gather dusk until your next disaster arrives. Risk managers need to put their BCPs to work in multiple ways. First, communicate. Circulate drafts of the plan among senior management and operation executives so all stakeholders know what it includes. Practice. Hold tabletop exercises or drills of possible disasters at regular intervals. You may even hold the tabletop exercises for each draft of the plan so risk managers can see what ideas will and more importantly won't work in practice. And finally, monitor. Risk to the business continuity will evolve. Resources may become more or less scarce. Service providers may merge or go out of business and reorganizations send key employees to new roles, et cetera. Just like any other risk management, third party and other risks should be assessed on an ongoing basis and the BCP should be updated as necessary. Mike Tyson once said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. This doesn't need to be the case in business. Business continuity plans take time, effort, and collaboration, but they can guide your organization through disaster, and they're far better than the alternative of having no plan at all. Tom? So, Jay, uh, next up, we had some news out of the Securities and Exchange Commission, and anyone who has uh, watched the SEC over the Trump administration and with the change in administration would not be surprised at this. But the acting head of the SEC expanded the number of staff authorized to issue a formal order of investigation. The Trump appointees to the SEC had tried to uh, really uh, throttle any investigations requiring that they, the commissioners themselves, were the only people who could authorize uh, a formal order of investigation. That was clearly to cut, uh, cut off the staff from doing so. Uh, the, uh, there were 36 individuals who were now given this delegation of authority. The numbers for the Trump administration in 2020 were just abysmal with only 405 um, standalone enforcement actions uh, open, the lowest since uh, 2015. It was clear that the Trump administration was going to try to choke off uh, SEC enforcement uh, they were not interested in protecting investors at all, whereas uh, I think the professional staff was. So um, kudos to the acting director for reverting uh, to form and allowing uh, the staff to actually uh, institute investigations. Um, hopefully we won't have the, uh, the same type of mentality from the Trump appointees to uh, the SEC going forward. So uh, next up, we have one of our favorite subjects as a sideload. Uh, Tom and my uh, affiliated monitors colleague, Mikhail Reader Gordon, have a podcast uh, called The Wirecard Saga. We're going to take a look at Wirecard today, and this comes to us from Dylan Tokar and Paul J. Davies at the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal. Wirecard red flag should have prompted earlier response, former executive says. When James Fries agreed to oversee Wirecard's legal and compliance functions, he saw it as an opportunity to help bring managerial order to a fast-growing fintech startup. 
Wirecard, once a darling of the German tech sector, has been haunted for years by media reports detailing allegations of accounting irregularities. Reviewing the company's financials, Mr. Fries discovered something wasn't right with the company that claimed more than $2 billion was held in trust accounts in the Philippines. This was the beginning of a whirlwind sequel of events for Wirecard and Mr. Freeze. Within days, the company, once valued at almost 24 billion euros, equivalent to about 29 billion on German's leading stock index, filed for insolvency. Prosecutors in Munich are investigating whether former Wirecard executives, including former head accountant Stefan von Erfra and Oliver Bellenhaus, the former head of one of Wirecard's Dubai-based businesses, engaged in wrongdoing ranging from accounting manipulation to money laundering. Also, these also have come under investigation. Wirecard's business, which focused on extracting fees for processing credit cards and online payments on behalf of other businesses, was largely unregulated when it began. Mr. Fries believed he would be given the support to help enact real change. Instead, he became the executive who will ultimately lead to the unwinding of Wirecard. The company faced a $1.3 billion revolving line of credit that was due to come soon after he became the CEO. And the days that followed, he delved deeper into Wirecard's financials and concluded that there had likely been a range of other frauds perpetrated within the company, involving misappropriation of assets to the tune of about a billion dollars. In Germany, where the scandal is sometimes likened to the 2001 collapse of Enron, officials have explored legal and regulatory overhauls that could prevent a similar debacle. Lawmakers have criticized the German financial watchdog, Bafin, and the company and the country's accounting oversight board, APAS, for failing to act earlier on red flags, including Wirecard's use of external offshore trust. Key to the alleged fraud was the dual role of Wirecard, played on as a commercial services firm that controlled the bank. German and European Union laws allow commercial entities to own banks without the parent being subject to extended oversight by regulators such as Bafin or the European Central Bank. German car manufacturers such as Volkswagen AG and Daimler AG also own banking subsidiaries that provide financing to dealers. Following the Wirecard scandal, German lawmakers have considered changing the definition of a financial holding company to give regulators greater oversight over the companies that own banks. German lawmakers are also considering changes to the company's two-tiered corporate governance system, which would give non-executive supervisory boards more control over the management. The proposed changes will be helpful. But the million dollar question is whether any or all of them would prevent a highly organized rogue senior management from committing a similar fraud. Tom? Where I am, the um, issue is uh, you have no rights as an employee. So that's um, uh, companies can get your uh, mobile devices and uh, you uh, use them and, and uh, uh, check out what's on them at any time. But the, um, in many other jurisdictions, there are laws which uh, prohibit that. So you need to have clear policies and procedures which spell out your rights. You need to have uh, a backup system uh, that can store and document any WhatsApp messaging. You need to have a clear delineation between your um, 
personal and work phone. And if there's a problem, because if you have a recalcitrant employee who won't cooperate, you need to be able to demonstrate to the Department of Justice, uh, we have uh, cleaned this up and this, this is our policy. They're violating the policy and they've destroyed the messages. It may not be enough, but at least you've made a, a uh, effort to uh, demonstrate uh, adherence to the DOJ requirements. So, Jay, uh, what do you have next? Uh, next up, we've got a story from Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance. And this comes to us by Andrew Lepsick and Barton Edgerton from the National Association of Corporate Directors. And they consider the future of the virtual boardroom. Since the beginning of the COVID-19 crisis, lockdowns, excuse me, lockdowns, there have been no shortage of experts forecasting drastic shifts in the way that work gets done, including the work of the board. The National Association of Corporate Directors, uh, acronym NACD, surveyed 749 directors to better understand the impact of COVID-19 on corporate governance. Although there were initial challenges in adapting to the virtual working environment, directors were able to continue to govern effectively. Directors reported shifts in the role that digital technology played in corporate governance, suggesting that the virtual setting for board meetings will be popular following the pandemic. Recent NACD survey confirms this, that in corporate governance, suggesting that the adaptation of working remotely is here to stay. Directors adapted quickly to the virtual environment. In the beginning of the pandemic, boards saw abrupt change in their board operations with no way to go back. According to the survey, 36% of respondents listed their organization's digital competency as a weakness as opposed to a strength, and 27% described their organization's technology infrastructure as a weakness. Technology created the biggest challenges for directors. During the pandemic, Directors reported that the challenges posed by the virtual environment were largely operational in nature and can be addressed through technology that makes virtual meetings more efficient. Digging deeper, the survey found that 72% of directors responded that it was a challenge losing nonverbal communication between directors, while 30% responded it was tough facilitating Q&A. This shows that the biggest problems can be fixed. With better communication platforms, the lack of nonverbal communication can be mitigated, if not completely resolved. There is a case to be made that with better technology, there will be better communication and less challenging virtual board meetings. Despite these challenges, boards were still effective. Technology worked well enough that directors' efforts were not significantly hindered by having to meet virtually. 94% of the residents, respondents said that they were able to govern effectively, demonstrating the shift to virtual meetings did not interfere with their duties. Virtual meetings can be a greater force in the future. NACDs surveyed directors about whether or not their board plans to utilize virtual meetings following the pandemic, and the results show that the virtual meetings will have more staying power at the committee level than the full board level. Finally, the percentage of virtual meetings post-crisis. Findings show how much of a shift to the virtual board work we might expect to see in the future. Even if it's just one in every 10 boards who hold the majority of their meetings virtually, it would lead to a drastic shift in board operations. 
Furthermore, in a May 2020 COVID-19 survey, NACD found that 50% of responding directors thought that changing the way in which work gets done would be one of the key influences to make the most impact post-recovery. While the extent to which virtual board meetings will become an accepted and effective tool for corporate governance is unknown, future board meetings are likely to feature more virtual communication. Every board will not stay virtual following the crisis. However, trends point towards greater adoption, both in the near term and the long term. Tom, back to you. Jay, we've got lots of podcast news on this week in FCPA. Uh, first of all, uh, on the Compliance Live this month, we're featuring Nat- Natalia Shaheda, who's a CCO at ABB. And in this uh, episode, episode two, sh- she walks us through her, her professional journey, starting on Capitol Hill, then going to uh, White Chew Law Firms, uh, doing uh, white-collar defense work, then moving into the corporate world. She's on the cusp of moving into the CCO chair, but she really talks about what she learned, the mentors she had, both in private practice and the corporate world. So it's a great episode. Uh, I, I premiered uh, one episode, excuse me, one new podcast this month, Comtech on the intersection of compliance and technology, where I'm co-hosting with Valerie Charles, a partner at Stone Turn. Uh, the most recent episode, we have Parth Chanda, uh, he founded Lextegrity, and he is actually the Skywalker of compliance due to his uh, innovation in technology. So check out our uh, podcast with Parth. Uh, next Monday, I'm premiering uh, one of uh, my favorite new podcasts, one I wanted to do for a long time. It's called Big Brains in Compliance. And with Stephen Martin, a good friend of mine, uh, who you know, I, uh, years ago did a compliance road shows for a couple of years, we're going to try to recreate that roadshow, um, Bing Crosby, Bob Hope feel, uh, where we talk to some of the top thinkers uh, in compliance. So it's going to be, we're not the big brains, we're talking to the big brains, and we're going to learn from the big brains, and hopefully you can learn from the big brains. So check those out. Jay, you may not know what a pod tube is. I learned that phrase two days ago. That's a podcast that's on YouTube, and I am now pod tubing. Uh, over on the Compliance Podcast Network YouTube site, uh, I have a, a new podcast. It's a um, video podcast of uh, about the Compliance Handbook. I'm extraordinarily pleased to announce the pre-publication sale of my latest edition to the Compliance Handbook. In my hum- humble opinion, the single best volume on design creation and implementation of a best practice compliance program. Uh, volume one was a bestseller. Uh, on Amazon through its initial run. And for uh, the second edition, I am uh, teaming with LexisNexis as the publisher. So, uh, but this podcast series, I go through uh, basically uh, one chapter a week, but I talk to a top thinker in that area. And for overall compliance programs, I turn to my good friend, Stephen Martin, who has developed a framework to help people think through uh, compliance programs literally in any compliance discipline, environmental, AML, trade sanction, ABC, you name it. And uh, uh, for any type of anti-corruption or other compliance law. So check that out. It's also on the Compliance Podcast Network, FCPA Compliance Report, JD Super, and all my normal uh, channels. But if you want to see the full color, full flavor, full video, uh, check out the YouTube uh, posting, and we've linked to that uh, in the show notes. 
Jay, I know you're excited because uh, you and your uh, affiliated monitors colleagues have started uh, a new AMI podcast. In addition to the AMI Expert Podcast Series, you want to tell us about um, the new AMI podcast? Sure. So our new podcast is called Integrity Through Compliance, and we'll have AMI's expert observations and guidance in the fields of ethics, antitrust, healthcare, government contracting, corporate governance, cybersecurity, construction, telecommunications, consumer protection, and more. And in the first episode, uh, AMI's founder, Vin Siani, will visit with my colleague, Jerry Coyne, and they'll take a look at the future of telehealth and home health care during the pandemic and beyond. Um, next up on Thursday, February 25th, um, you have an opportunity to join the Ask an Expert Finquiry webinar on Dolphin K2 and um, excuse me, K2 Integrity's financial crimes compliance experts will respond to all of your AML and CFT sanctions and other financially integrity related questions. Uh, in the show notes, we have further information and there's a link to sign up. And I uh, wanted to let you know that Compliance Week is accepting nominations for their Excellence in Compliance Award. And also on the show notes, there's an opportunity uh, to submit. Tom, why don't you tell us what our good friend Jonathan Marks has in the hopper? Right. Jonathan Marks, uh, one of the hardest working people in uh, internal audit, compliance, and internal controls and a wide variety of other fields, uh, has put together Baker Tilly's first annual uh, Fraud and Compliance Summit. It's going to run for three days, uh, February 23 through 25. I think it's three to four hours a day. It's chocked full of fabulous presentations. I was lucky enough to to be asked to present. Mary Shirley and I review uh, 2020 from the compliance practitioner perspective. But it will be uh, live engagement with uh, Mary and myself uh, with our presentation, as with all of the authors. It's going to be a fabulous uh, three days of fraud and compliance. Uh, it's really innovative what Jonathan has done, and I hope that uh, you will join us. Of course, we've linked to uh, details and registration in the show notes, and the uh, best part is it's free. Did you say free? I did. I did. And um, I'm, go ahead. Uh, is that is that within your budget? Yes, I can definitely I can definitely do free. And I was going to say that uh, uh, from the affiliated monitors' perspective, I'll be sharing some opening remarks on day three, February twenty third, talking about the twenty twenty the FCPA year that was. And my colleague Eric Feldman will also be discussing perverse incentives. One other gratuitous plug, uh, you well know that uh, Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine have an amazing podcast called The Great Women in Compliance, which Tom features on his Compliance Podcast Network. And I wanted to give a shameless plug to listen to me and Mary as we talk about my uh, journey from being a screenwriter to recovering screenwriter and now an ethics and compliance professional. And we close off the podcast each talking about one compliance lesson that we learned from our moms. So uh, we'd love you to check that out uh, on Tom's uh, Compliance Podcast Network. Once again, it's the Great Women in Compliance uh, podcast. Uh, Tom, anything else in your end? Uh, yes, Jay. A couple of things. 
First of all, if you are interested in podcasting in any way and you've always wanted to be a part of a Guinness World Record attempt and uh, breaking the Guinness World Records, I have the event for you. PodFest Expo is going to have a PodFest Global Summit the first week of March, March 1 to 5. The um, last summer, they set the record for the largest virtual conference in the history of the world ever, 5,004. They hope to, to blast through that by having 10,000 attendees. So if you're interested in podcasting, anything from storytelling to the technical side of uh, audio to uh, what to write down to how to use a mic and everything in between, uh, join us for PodFest Global Summit. Uh, the, we have a promo code that will get you a free pass uh, we've linked to it in the show notes. It's a pretty simple one, CPN for Compliance Podcast Network. I'd love to have you a part of it. I'm going to be speaking about the state of business podcasting in 2021 with uh, my one of my uh, comp- compliance podcast producers, Megan Doherty. So uh, check that out. Uh, it, and if you attend any one of the sessions, it will count towards the uh, Guinness Book of World Records. You don't have to attend all Five days. Uh, they're actually going to have a pre-week of video fest. So now that I'm a pod tuber, I will probably check that out. But if you're interested in podcasting at all, this is the place for uh, you to be. It's it's designed for the independent podcaster. Also, Jay, uh, I get to talk again about the Compliance Handbook Second Edition available for presale. Uh, we've got a special discount code for our listeners, Fox Twenty Five. Uh, if you check out the uh, Show notes, it will give you the uh, details to the book and be able to purchase it. So uh, I uh, also will shamelessly plug it it once again. The best single volume uh, compliance handbook, really the nuts and bolts of how to operationalize a compliance program. And I I believe your mom feels the same way, doesn't she? You know, my mom has not opined on this yet. Um, My daughter uh, thinks it's uh, very cool. And she's uh, working on some uber cool graphics that we will use in the publicity campaign. So uh, the mark of Paris Fox uh, continues uh, to expand, and uh, hopefully, they uh, the stuff she's putting together for me, both uh, audio and visually, will be quite stunning with her background in uh, graphic design and arts. Um, Jay, with that, you want to take us home? Sure. So if this is your first time listening to this week in FCPA, you can. Surely see that it is a family affair. If you'd like to reach Tom, he uh, can be reached at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. And myself, Jay Rosen, a.k.a. Mr. Monitor, you can reach me at J, the letter J, Rosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. So on behalf of Tom and myself, we'd like to thank you for joining us on This Week in FCPA, episode 239 for the week ending February 12th. The GOAT, the greatest of all time edition. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope that you will be safe and healthy, and we'll talk to you next week on This Week in FCPA. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. I'd like you to check out the new Affiliated Monitors podcast. We'll be up on the Compliance Podcast Network very soon. It's going to be uh, some great content from our good friends at Affiliated Monitors, including my This Week in FCPA co-host, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors himself. You can reach Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. 
You can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you'll join us each Thursday at 4 p.m. Central on LinkedIn or Facebook, where we live stream This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening. We look forward to visiting with you again next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.